Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I have no scientific basis for what I'm about to say. It just seems logical to me. We are all here because at some point, if not several points in the deepest history of our ancestry, dating back to times that predate history as we know it, one of our predecessors avoided or survived an encounter with a killer animal. We all owe our existence to someone who avoided a tiger or a snake or a spider or a bear once upon a distant time. In the present, I imagine that the overwhelming majority of people listening to this right now don't have to worry about dangerous animals killing or even injuring them. If anything, it's quite the opposite. Civilization has pushed many animals to the brink of extinction or beyond, including some predators that would have a clear natural advantage over us if we were barred from using technology, weaponized or otherwise. But of course, Technological advancement is one of the things that makes human beings human beings, and it's hard for me to complain about it when I'm sitting here in my comfortably air-conditioned home using a microphone and computer to record my thoughts on horror and other uh, adjacent subjects, which I'll share with anyone in the world who has the capacity to hear it, courtesy of, you guessed it, technology. We can readily kill animals without even trying, without meaning to or thinking about it. I've past far more roadkill in my life than I can even begin to put a number to. It's not even particularly startling to see it. Now that I've written that here in the, the script that I have in front of me to say it on this podcast, it kind of sounds a little bit disturbing when I put it that way, but the rather gory aftermath of high-speed violence on the roads can uh, just lay out in the street, sometimes for several days, and most of us aren't terribly sickened or stricken by it, even if it's the remains of an animal we collectively, at least in America, have deemed lovable. I have sadly seen dogs or cats in the road, and not one single person pulling over to the side of the road to lament that this might have been somebody's pet, a child's cherished companion, a family friend, anything along those lines. We might sincerely think that it's unfortunate to see such an animal in the road, but we don't think that way enough for it to disrupt our day-to-day activities and for us to do anything about it, not like we might do something about it, say, if we saw a human body in the road. And look, I'm not going to pretend I'm king wildlife activist here, and I'm not trying to equate animal lives to human lives. I'm just trying to make some observations that I plan to tie into the theme of this episode, which you probably guessed by the title is the fear of dangerous animals. One of our primal, most fundamental fears is the fear of anything out there in the wild that can kill us. It's not a fear of something man-made such as clowns or plane crashes. This is something that was baked into our forebearers, the recognition and respectful, healthy fear of things with teeth 
far sharper than yours, and strength much greater than yours, and speed that often tops out much higher than the best you've got, even if you're motivated by running for your life. This fear of nature's many predators, or even just animals defending their turf, has been explored in pop culture countless times. Not literally countless times, but who's got the time to actually count that up, you know what I'm saying. Once upon a time, the biggest movie of all time, the one that changed how the industry releases films, was the masterpiece that is Jaws. A relatively straightforward story about shark attacks executed extraordinarily well. Spielberg would, again, years later, make another movie that helped alter the industry and became the biggest movie of all time when it was released, Jurassic Park. Now, granted, the animals of Jurassic Park are born of science fiction, but they are animals nonetheless that actually once roamed the Earth. They're not aliens. They're not an invented monster doubling as a metaphor like the almighty Godzilla, all respect due to Godzilla. They're just big, mean, fast, and ferocious animals possessing many sharp parts with which to render a human being a ruin. But honing in on Jaws specifically here, there hadn't quite been a major movie or novel like it prior to its release, at least as, as far as I could tell, and I don't claim to be a historical scholar of horror or anything like that, but it did strike me as something of an outlier when I did do some research into what came out previously in the category of animal attack films. It was about a killer animal just doing what it does and being what it is, at least to a significant degree. It wasn't, for instance, like Hitchcock's masterpiece, The Birds, which, of course, also is based on a, the, the novel by Daphne du Maurier, credit where it's due there. And in that film, all the birds are, are acting in very unbird-like fashion, if, if that's a term, and that's where the, the horror is derived from. Similarly, you have monster movies from the 50s that involve animals that become outsized for one reason or another, or whose aggression is often a product of some kind of scientific mishap gone wrong, uh, irradiation, a nuclear accident. That's how you end up with the giant ants in the film Them, for instance. There wasn't any hint of this in Jaws. Nothing, um, nothing in a, with a science fiction bent, nor was there anything with a supernatural or metaphysical bent, such as there was in the television film Killer Bees, which was released a year earlier than Jaws, in which said bees were controlled by a psychic. And it's not even about some kind of a beast of legend that is taken outside of its natural habitat, as is the case in King Kong. Jaws is just fundamentally about a shark in the ocean attacking people. Now, to be sure, shark attacks on human beings are unusual, but they're not unnatural. If you were to hear about a town being attacked by thousands of birds in an apparently coordinated siege, you'd probably, justifiably, presume it was an internet hoax or a joke of some kind. However, if you heard about a handful of people being bitten by a shark over the course of several days, history would tell you that this is something that can actually happen, and you'd probably find that perfectly plausible. This is an element of the story that I feel like was largely lost on many, if not most, of the novels and movies that sought to capitalize on the success of Jaws for example, one of many examples, in Arthur Herzog's Orca, the novel and in the film that came out after Jaws, Herzog makes the claim that the killer whales are the only other animal besides human beings that kill for vengeance. I am not a marine biologist, so I could be wrong here, but I haven't found anything to support this notion in my limited research, and again, I'm not an expert in the field. 
Even if it is true, however, I doubt an orca's revenge would consist of knowing to attack oil pipelines and finding out the specific location of a captain's seaside house. The level of intelligence and tenacity given to the orca of that film is well, well, well outside of anything that could remotely resemble something that would happen in the natural world. In the film Grizzly, which also came out after Jaws and basically tried to transplant the idea of Jaws onto land and what better animal to do that with than with a giant bear. But instead of giving us a relatively ordinary, comparatively speaking, dangerous rampaging bear, the titular grizzly is a prehistoric animal that is almost twice as tall and at least 25% heavier than the largest grizzly bears on record, which are already pretty large. The shark in Jaws was certainly larger than the typical Great White, but it didn't double size records or anything along those lines, and it wasn't presented as a megalodon or some ancient version of the creature. I could go on for quite a while with examples of this. I'll just, I'll just add a few more in here, but in the uh, William Essex novel, the pack abandoned pet dogs possess unnatural intelligence. In the film Mako, Jaws of Death, a man develops a telepathic connection with sharks and uses them to get revenge on anyone who slighted him. He also has a medallion that protects him from the sharks because we can go ahead and add a little mysticism in there too, along with the metaphysical elements. And leaning even more into the supernatural, the 1980 film Jaws of Satan sees the devil himself take the form of a large king cobra because who says you have to choose between taking quote-unquote inspiration from either The Exorcist or from Jaws, why not both? This continued well beyond the 70s and early 80s. Deep Blue Sea features scientifically enhanced super-intelligent sharks. The films Burning Bright and Crawl both feature dangerous animals taken away from their natural habitat and put into places where you wouldn't expect them. A tiger and alligators, respectively for each film, both ending up, incidentally, in houses boarded up and facing a hurricane, so there's a little bit of a parallel thinking or what have you, whatever you'd want to categorize it as, exhibited in those two different films. In Snakes on a Plane, famously, you get exactly what the title says it has. You can find counterexamples to the ones that I've referenced as well, books and movies that are more in line with the relative naturalism of Jaws. Stephen King's very memorable Cujo, for instance, is fairly straightforward in his portrayal of a large, but not impossibly large by any means, and rabid dog. And the film, as a practical matter more so than, uh, I think, a, a specific decision, removes even the slightest hint of the supernatural that remained in King's book from an earlier draft in which Cujo was possessed by the spirit of a local serial killer. More recently, you have Open Water, The Shallows, 47 Meters Down. All of those feature unmodified sharks in their natural habitat. Yes, maybe they might behave a little bit differently than what a shark in the wild would actually do if you were to consult a, uh, an expert on the subject. But still, these are not in any way supernatural sharks. They're not taken outside of their natural habitat, so on and so forth. And I think there's something that potentially, potentially resonates a little more about an animal attack story that doesn't rely on science fiction or the supernatural or wild beasts showing up in unusual places. Not that I'm averse to any of those setups, but I think our fascination with an understandable fear of toothy, speedy, ferocious beasts, particularly man-eaters, means that the unnatural, extra-extraordinary elements often just kind of get in the way. There have been many, Famous, or probably better said, infamous, incidents 
involving animals terrorizing entire communities. Jaws, of course, was partly inspired by the 1916 New Jersey shark attacks, an 11-day event that greatly influenced the way that people perceived sharks, even experts at the time, the way that they perceived sharks and how they behaved and the threat that they could pose to human beings. A half year earlier, in 1915, a brown bear killed seven people over the course of five days in a region of Japan. The Beast of Jevoden, perhaps the most legendary man-eater of all time, partly due to some lingering speculation about what exactly it was. Was it a wolf or multiple wolves or even a wild dog or some other wilder speculation? It terrorized a 2,800-square-mile region of France for three years in the 18th century. Even deadlier man-eaters have rampaged through other portions of the world, primarily India and Africa. A tiger in Nepal and a leopard in northwestern India are said to have killed over 400 people apiece near the beginning of the 20th century. In the central provinces of India, around the same general time frame, another leopard was deemed responsible for 150 deaths. In Kenya, a pair of lions killed 135 people, mostly railway workers, and these attacks in Kenya became the source for multiple films over the years, most famously, or at least most recently, The Ghost and the Darkness, which wasn't terribly concerned with accuracy, but was nonetheless reasonably entertaining. The same cannot be said, as far as uh, entertainment value, about another movie loosely, loosely inspired by an African man-eater. In 2007, Primeval became mildly infamous at the time for its wildly, wildly deceptive ad campaign. It claimed to be a film about history's most prolific serial killer, responsible for approximately 300 deaths or more. Said killer is named Gustav, and he was indeed terribly frightening and dangerous. He's also a crocodile, which by definition, excludes him from being a serial killer, since the second word in the Oxford Dictionary definition of the term serial killer is person, as in you're not a serial killer if you're not a person. That much is probably obvious to the vast majority of us. Even if we allowed for Gustav to be categorized as a serial killer, he would not be the most prolific serial killer of all time. As I mentioned, he is estimated to have killed 300 or so unfortunate people, whereas the tiger and leopard from India that I mentioned earlier are thought to have killed north of 400 apiece. So at best, Gustav would be around the third most prolific serial killer of all time. But even if those numbers are all suspect and up for contention, let's say, even if we set all of that aside... The advertising would still be misleading since Primeval is not actually all that concerned with Gustav. It's not specifically about him. It's at least as much a film about African genocide and the Western world's general comparative indifference to atrocities committed on that continent as opposed to elsewhere. And this is certainly, certainly a subject worthy of exploration in a film, particularly a film that is capable of handling it tactfully and thoughtfully and even just sincerely and primeval is none of those things it doesn't meet any of those qualifiers it is not that kind of film but all is not hopeless if you're living in the year 2007 and somehow listening to this now and determined to watch a good film about crocodile attacks you're going to get two more of them before the year is out both of them far far superior 
to Primeval, which was embarrassed to even admit what it was partially about. And both of these additional crocodile attack films have a similar simple premise. Both of them also claim to be at least partially inspired by something from the real world. And both are set in the same country. A place that is just about legendary for being home to tough people partially made so tough because they live seemingly among a variety of killer critters. Australia. To be clear, Australia is a little less unbelievably deadly than you might think it is based on internet memes and the like, but even before the internet was a thing, Australia already had this reputation and it's not completely baseless. The most venomous aquatic animal in the world is the box jellyfish found off the coast of Australia, the world's most venomous snake and four of the world's top 10 most venomous snakes can all be found in the land down under. Now. It is important, just for a moment here, to distinguish between most venomous and most dangerous because some of these snakes, such as the one that tops the most venomous list, are far more likely to slither away from a person than to attack one. So if your bite is the deadliest but you don't bite all that often, that makes you less dangerous than a snake with a slightly less potent venom but that is much more aggressive and eager to attack. Still, 40% of the world's most lethal slithery venom dispensers is nothing to scoff at. Australia also has the very venomous blue-ringed octopus and the Sydney funnel-web spider which is named after a major metropolitan, the second biggest city in the country. That's not something terribly common to most, if any, other parts of the world. It's not like there's a sinister Santiago scorpion or murder wasp of Madrid to talk about. And to round it out, Australia also has great white sharks and also the quite dangerous bull shark, the latter of which was actually responsible for those Jersey Shore shark attacks that inspired Jaws. So, you know, it's not like we're exactly short on deadly animals over here in America as well. But for comparison's sake, we here in the States have alligators. Elsewhere, including Australia, they have saltwater crocodiles, which are routinely bigger, more powerful, more aggressive, and overall deadlier. Hence, similar to how Africa has Gustav, Australia has its own named and famous and large crocodile, Sweetheart. The difference, though, is that while Gustav has reportedly killed hundreds, Sweetheart never actually killed anybody, even though it did attack fishing boats and dinghies. Still, you can't let the legend of a large and notable member of Crocodilia go to waste, particularly not if you're Australian director Greg McLean, who broke into the cinema world with the brutal indie slasher Wolf Creek. His crocodile film, very lightly and very loosely inspired by Sweetheart, is called Rogue, and its setup is splendidly simple. A group of people on a boat tour divert from the tour at the last minute to investigate the site where a distress flare went up. They soon find themselves stranded after a large and territorial crocodile attacks and sinks the tour boat that they're in. They take refuge on a small river island that will soon be underwater once the tide rolls in, and as far as the premise goes, that's essentially all you need to know. But decisions and details, as much as ideas, can often make or break a story. An important thing about Rogue's group of tourists is that they're not at all unlikable. In fact, as a group, they're generally relatable. And even the people who turn into jerks for a moment 
typically only do so for a moment, and it's usually understandable given the stress that they're under. Even the man who appears to be the designated jerk when you first meet him proves immediately selfless as soon as he realizes the direness of the situation, and this is something that many horror fans know isn't always common to the genre. It feels like there is typically at least one obvious irritant in any group of potential victims, if not several people who occupy that role. And I feel it's more common to see a group largely or entirely comprised of petty, mean-spirited, or otherwise irritating characters than it is to find the inverse as you have in Rogue. For example, early in the film before things take a turn, a woman and her husband ask another woman if she wouldn't mind not smoking around them as the smoke is bothering them. And many, many other horror films would take this opportunity to make one or all of the parties involved disagreeable. The people bothered by the smoke would rudely tell the smoker to put out their cigarette, or the smoker would refuse their request even if the request was polite or both things would uh, happen. Instead, everyone proves reasonable. The smoker even at first is willing to share a cigarette before she understands what's actually being requested of her, and then she just moves downwind of the couple so as not to bother them. This isn't a huge thing, but it's important because I think it makes the characters seem less like characters and more like people. Yes, there are, in the real world, real people who are rude and aggravating to deal with for seemingly no reason, but in fiction, it often just comes off as forced and overdone. It's less something that someone is in the moment and more something that they are as a character entirely. You might as well trade out their names for what they're being. This is the annoying couple, this is the rude lady, and so on. Instead, we're dealing with Mary Ellen and Everett and Gwen. You're dealing with people who don't have to be incredibly charming or witty, just human enough that you might get invested in their survival. Because this is a survival horror story. This is an escape room scenario taken to horrifying extremes. You're trapped on a small piece of land that will effectively disappear soon. And there's an animal out there so dangerous that even getting a little too close to the water might put you between its teeth. So when these human beings, these people, do things that might come off as frustrating, it's at least understandable. When a woman freezes with fear while everyone's trying to escape, it's not because she's the designated nuisance character and it's her time to be a nuisance and she's been one the whole time. It's because she's scared to death of being devoured alive. And I think I can understand that. When a man tries to then rush her across so that he can get his wife and child to safety, jeopardizing everyone else in the process by potentially destroying their only means of escape, I get that as well. I know it's a bad decision, a rash decision doomed to fail, but I get why he's doing it. It's because this is how a person might genuinely react when they're scared not just for themselves, but for their loved ones. And there's definitely a difference between a character behaving a certain way because that's just what the author wanted, and because that's what the author has earned based on what they have established previously. And I'm lingering on all this humanization for a reason, I promise. Now, the first person to die in Rogue does so in a stunningly understated and effective manner, especially given this is a killer crocodile movie. The character doesn't just die off screen due to budgetary constraints. The movie definitely isn't shy about showing gory details later. They die this way to enhance the impact of the suddenness of their death. They're here one moment, and then when everyone's just barely distracted enough for a second or two, that first victim is gone. In fact, the first three people to die in the film all seem to disappear as if swallowed whole by the wilderness. In many real-world instances of someone unfortunately being killed in an animal attack, they were often by themselves in some remote area. 
they were last seen alive on their way to do something recreational. And then they encountered a part of nature we were never equipped to outrun or fly away from or counterattack. Something that can't begin to understand our language, much less care if we try to tell it we don't mean it any harm, we encountered it by mistake, we'll turn right back around and walk away. And when you think of it that way, it can make an animal seem even more alien than the aliens presented to us in fiction or in purported extraterrestrial encounters. Or maybe we're the aliens, you know, think of it however you want to. Extraterrestrials in fiction, though, often exhibit intelligence well above that of a human being and yet relatable to that of a human being. Animals have an intelligence apart from a human being's. A crocodile will never have to think of how to tie a rope between two high points to cross a dangerous path. That's what the characters in Rogue have to do. That's not something an animal has to think about. It never has to learn how to pilot a tour boat. It has no sense of wonder about its environment that might lead it to go on a tour that could then lead it into a dangerous situation. Its intelligence and wordless thoughts can be reserved just about entirely to focus on its day-to-day, moment-to-moment survival tasks. And in the moment it encounters you, those tasks are lurk, spring, bite, wound, kill, or capture, eat. In Rogue, we eventually learn that this crocodile has a lair in a cave which sets up for an exciting final showdown between the croc and the unlikely hero. It's thrilling and intense and more than a little over the top, but I think the movie earns it. Still, if you're in the mood for something a little bit more down-to-earth, the other Australian crocodile attack film from 2007 might be what you're looking for. Of course, as that film's name implies... Part of what makes a croc attack so frightening is that you might not be able to see what you're looking for under the water's surface until it's too late. Blackwater is probably the least known of the three crocodile attack films to come out in 2007, but here in the year 2020, it is also the only one of the three films to receive a sequel. I haven't seen that follow-up, and the reviews I've read haven't looked promising, but I can say that if it's even just a small step down from the first film, it could still be worth a watch. Again, the setup for Blackwater is very basic and reminiscent of Rogues, except for the scale is smaller. The boat is significantly smaller, and the number of survivors stranded in the river is cut to less than a third. The crocodile itself is smaller as well, but still big enough and powerful enough to kill. And as the film's name suggests, on top of the physical advantage it has, it also has stealth on its side. The water may not literally be black, but given its impenetrable visibility, it might as well be. This isn't even water deep enough to necessitate swimming, but you don't dare walk through it because... What you can't see just a foot or less beneath the surface can kill you. So, instead of on an island, our characters, two sisters and one of their husbands, end up taking refuge in a tree, wondering how best to escape to safety. No one's coming to get them, and they can't afford to just try and wait it out indefinitely. There is no tide coming in, but time is still not on their side, because the crocodile can wait them out. It is at home, whereas they are not, and it isn't motivated by anything that might make it lose interest. A crocodile, like any other killer animal, is not a malevolent force. It is not behaving immorally when it kills anything. It is, again, not a serial killer. 
It essentially can't afford to be. To survive in the wild, it doesn't have time for torture chambers or elaborate murder plots or psychotic fantasies. It doesn't have a dark ego that feeds on death. It has a need to feed on what it can kill. Even animals that kill for sport, quote-unquote, are stated to do so primarily to either gain experience, sharpening their skills, or to generate a surplus of food for themselves or for their offspring to eat later. They're not in it just for the fun, or so that they can mount a trophy or trade stories with a fellow hunter. This is what they do to live. The people in Blackwater are trying to survive, and in its own way, the crocodile is trying to do the same, and that's terrifying in a different way, not necessarily worse, but different, than when you're dealing with a human killer. I'm not interested in sharing much of my personal life on this podcast, or most other platforms for that matter, but I will share here that once I was attacked by a man with a knife, and I'm not much of a fighter despite my size, but part of why I think I fended him off was simply that I wanted to protect myself far, far more than he could ever want to hurt me. But if he had truly had an animalistic mentality, killing out of survival, out of instinct, not out of any human emotion or motive, things might have gone worse for me. He'd have had a better shot of exhausting me, that's for certain. This is an added element of danger for the characters in Black Water. They have to sleep. They have to rest. Because that killer croc is not going to tire out before they do. And when they're engaged with it, its fight or flight response is kicking off just as hard as theirs. This all drives the urgency of the situation in Blackwater, prompting the man of the trio to try his plan, which is simply to turn the capsized boat over so that they can use it to get out. Simple enough, except that the boat isn't exactly light, and just wading through the water might generate enough ripples to make the crocodile return, so imagine what overturning a boat will do, the energy you have to expend in order to overturn it, and the ripples you're going to create doing that. This being a horror movie about an animal attack, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that the first plan that they tried doesn't go smoothly, and they soon end up separated with the sisters remaining in the tree. Interestingly, just as a kind of a side here, ten years later, in the summer of 2017, two more movies would be released that featured the specific trope of two sisters trapped while surrounded by water. That's, that's not even really a trope, this is just a unique, specific setup that is explored in these two additional films, both of which are specifically named for the depths of water that these sisters are dealing with. On top of that, 47 meters down and 12 feet deep. Only one of these actually features a killer animal as the primary threat. Still, it's an interesting coincidence, I think, and it highlights that, as I've mentioned before, fear of anything is not necessarily just a matter of us being afraid for ourselves. We are often afraid for family or friends or even just people we feel responsible for who otherwise might be strangers to us. Eventually, Blackwater, as well as Rogue for that matter, is not just a story about surviving, but trying to save others. And that can be just as scary when you're feeling powerless to do anything, or at least not as powerful as the threat. Still, fear can drive us to fight, and fighting, even without a strategy, can sometimes be the difference between living and dying. Blackwater and Rogue both see instances of characters fighting longer than what seems humanly possible. After all, once a crocodile clamps its powerful jaws around any part of your body, it typically initiates what is called a death roll. Alligators do this as well, which you can imagine is supposed to result in the death of its prey, given the name. And I recall more recently, when the film Crawl came out, there was some 
criticism leveled at it for seeming to show a character surviving things that no one could possibly live through, including a death roll. And yet, in 1985, Australian philosopher Val Plumwood did indeed survive a crocodile's death roll, three different times, in fact, during the same attack. In 2017, Malaysian ecologist Rudy Francis also survived an attack and a death roll. Both of them fought and clawed and resisted and did everything they could to survive and were surely scared as hell the whole time. And in Val's case, she ended up requiring skin grafts and spent a month in the ICU. And in Rudy's case, he lost his leg beneath the knee. But they both lived to tell the tale. Now, these are exceptional circumstances. That goes without saying. But many of the stories we love are all about exceptional circumstances. Hell, getting attacked by an animal in the first place isn't an everyday occurrence, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't fault films like Crawl or Rogue or Blackwater for showing me the exceptional, especially when they get me to invest in the very frightened people they put in these horrible circumstances. And the people portrayed in Blackwater are very human, not just reductive character types. And as I said... That's just generally valuable for better storytelling, but it also serves as an interesting contrast in the way that people see each other, even the way we see people pretending to be other people versus the way an animal might see us. In the aftermath of her attack, Val Plumwood talked about being reduced to just food for something else. The croc doesn't care anything about your hopes and aspirations, the grief of the ones that you'll leave behind if it kills you, the very concept of leaving anyone behind at all. None of that matters to the croc any more than the life of a dead deer in the road matters to the average motorist. It matters even less to the croc, in fact. We fear animals that might attack us, and particularly are frightened and fascinated by those that might make a meal out of us, in particular because we are not human to them. We call them man-eaters, but to them we have no name, no designation, no species or order that we belong to. We are no one to them. We have no identity. We have a taste. We are meat and blood and bones. And the only things they might remember about us is that we made for satisfactory eating and might have been a relatively easy kill. So, if they should happen upon another one of us, they'll know to treat the next one just like the last one. Thank you for listening to episode 9 of the Healthy Fears podcast, and I know it's a little bit late, and I apologize, but at least it's here, and one of these days I promise I'm going to stick to the schedule I keep saying that I'm going to adhere to. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode and you enjoy the podcast in general, as always, feel free to subscribe, leave a review or a rating if your podcast platform allows you to interact that way, and of course... Feel free to tell a friend, share on whatever social media platform you care to share on. If you're interested in any of my writing, you can see my publication credits on johnnycompton.com as well as anything else I care to share on the site. And I invite you to join me for the next episode where I'll continue on this subject of fears born out of nature. And then we'll be moving into Halloween season, October, and I'll be trying to increase my output actually for the month of October with some special episodes about subjects that I think are a little bit more fun and fitting for the season. In the meantime, one way or another, until you hear from me again, maybe try to never smile at a crocodile.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.